Welcome to the New England Law Review On Remand podcast. I'm Volume 49's Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. And I'm Volume 50's Executive Online Editor, Brandon Airy. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newinglrev.com. There, you can find our most recent online publication in Honormand, America the U Social, by Professor Timothy P. O'Neill. Today, we are joined by Tigran Eldred, a professor here at New England Law Boston, to discuss his work in behavioral legal ethics. Professor Eldred, thank you for joining us. To start off our discussion, could you give us and our listeners a brief explanation or definition of what behavioral legal ethics is? Sure. Well, as you know, there are rules that uh, apply to lawyers in determining whether or not they can engage in certain conduct or not. Law students learn those rules. They're the model rules of professional conduct, and there are other um, sources of law that apply to lawyers as well. Uh, behavioral ethics basically asks the question of why do people engage in ethical decision-making? In other words, do they follow the rules, don't they follow the rules, and why? And the underlying thesis is that there is a series of psychological reasons why people make decisions, and we should know what they are and study them in deciding how ethical decisions are made. What is ethical blindness? Ethical blindness is a term of art that uh, I and others have used in describing some aspects of behavioral legal ethics. Um, Essentially, the question is, why do otherwise good people make mistakes? Why do they engage in unethical uh, misbehavior, uh, misconduct? Um, And the question really is about uh, the psychological processes that we were describing uh, a moment ago. So uh, instead of asking the question, why do people intentionally engage in misconduct, the question is, are they blind to some of the reasons why they make mistakes? Are they engaging in misbehavior for reasons that they're unaware? Are there unconscious processes that are taking place? And we know from psychological studies that, in fact, there are, and what we're doing is assessing legal ethics in the context of the psychological and empirical data. What kinds of unconscious biases or blind spots can affect the decisions of lawyers? Well, there's literally dozens of them, uh, probably even more. We could spend a whole semester talking about them, so unfortunately we don't have time (laughs) to do that today. Um, So I thought maybe we could just describe a couple of them. Um, Do you mind if I enlist you in a a short experiment? Go for it. We're here for it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, let's just do a little test. Um, I'm going to give you a series of three numbers, okay? And uh, I have a rule in mind that these three numbers are an example of. And your job is to try to figure out what the rule is, okay? So I'll tell you what the three numbers are. You tell me what you think the rule is. And if you want to ask me more information, you can. But the way that you have to do it is you have to propose a series of three numbers. And I'll tell you whether or not it fits the rule or not. And then after that, you can guess or try to guess what you think the rule is, okay? Okay. All right. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> so here are the three numbers. Two, four, and eight. What do you think the rule is? Doubling? That's not the rule. But you can, if you'd like, propose three numbers, and I'll tell you whether or not it fits the rule. Three, six, twelve? That fits the rule. <laughs> you know what the rule is? No. You can also ask me, you, I'll propose more uh, series of numbers, and I'll tell you whether or not it fits the rule or not. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing. I have uh, no idea. <laughs> okay, I, mean, I think you multiply. No, no, I don't have it. No. How about one more series? Why don't you give me one more series of numbers, and I'll tell you if it fits the rule. Four, eight, sixteen? That fits the rule. What do you think the rule is? Uh, 
for doubling the previous number? If not doubling, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's not the rule. Want me to tell you what the rule is? Yeah. Any three numbers that are ascending. So what does this demonstrate, right? What you were doing, tell me if I, I'm wrong here, what you were doing is you were looking for examples of something that confirmed a hypothesis that you had already created in your mind, your initial hypothesis, whatever it was. The rule is doubling, for example, and then you were trying to look for examples that would demonstrate that. Um, and this is what everybody does. It's called confirmation bias. It's a standard bias um, psychologically demonstrated by dozens and dozens of studies. This was actually one of the classic studies that demonstrated it. And what we do is we start out with a belief, in this case, your your belief of what the rule was that you had in your mind, and then you look for examples that support your belief. And that's what we do in, in life all the time. Everybody does it. Um, scientists tell us that that's not the best way to test the validity of a hypothesis, right? What you should be doing is trying to find disconfirming evidence, evidence that falsifies the rule, and therefore you can say, oh, then that's not situation, right? So you're always looking for evidence that disconfirms your pre-existing beliefs as opposed to confirms your pre-existing beliefs. Because no matter how many examples you come up with, all you would be able to do is find an additional example of something that doesn't prove the existence of a rule. The only way to prove the existence of a rule is to show that there are no disconfirming examples. So confirmation bias is a classic example of a bias. I mean, we can see how this applies in legal ethics all the time. People start with a belief. Let's start, for example, with the duty of confidentiality, a very important legal duty. Um, students actually start law school believing that confidentiality is extremely important. It's sacrosanct, that it's not something to be violated. turns out that the legal rules actually do require sometimes that you disclose information that your, your clients tell you. In many instances, it gives discretion for, for lawyers to disclose information that, they, that your clients have given to you. Um, but there's a tendency, I think, for people to believe that they are not going to reveal information that their clients are, have given to them or the information that they gathered during the course of the representation because of this pre-existing belief about the importance of confidentiality. Again, the point here is not that um, all actions are right or all actions are wrong, but what we're trying to do is assess why certain decisions are made. So that's one example. It's called confirmation bias. There are numbers of others. Um, the second one that's really interesting is the concept of motivated reasoning. It's very related to confirmation bias. We tend to seek out information not only that confirms our pre-existing beliefs, but also that seeks out information that is consistent with the decision that we actually want to achieve, right? We're looking for information that confirms our wants and our desires. It's called wishful thinking, right? And the bottom line here is, is that you can imagine that when lawyers are interpreting information, and often ambiguous information, psychologically often what's happening is that they're interpreting that ambiguous information in a way that's consistent with what's beneficial either to them or to their clients. Now that may often be good, but in some instances it may lead them astray. There are rules that, for example, require you not to suborn perjury. There are rules that require you not to withhold information in discovery or um, destroy evidence. There's a series of rules that prevent lawyers from doing certain things. And how do lawyers interpret information about those rules? If they're always interpreting information in a way that's consistent with self-serving biases, a motivated approach, then they may not be as objective as they need to be in evaluating this evidence. So confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. A third one that's really interesting is overconfidence bias. Um, I bet if I asked you whether or not you think that most people think that they're above average in a series of really desirable traits, you would say that you think that they are. Most people probably think that they're above average drivers, that they're above average in terms of honesty, that they're above average in terms of maybe being a good spouse, 
Um, of course, no more than 50% of the population could be above average in any particular trait, right? So we know that statistically significant, uh, excuse me, statistically impossible for more than 50% of the people to be above average. But we all tend to believe that we're above average. And how does that play itself out? We tend to be overconfident. We think that we're going to be better at something than we actually are. Well, this really has a significant impact on the whole world of conflicts of interest, which is probably one of the most significant legal ethics challenges that lawyers face. Right? The questions are often, can they handle complete competing obligations between two clients or a current client and a former client? And if there's a general tendency for lawyers to believe that they can handle those tensions, that they're not going to be influenced by those conflicting duties, that they're going to be objective, and they're misstating or overstating the degree to which they can be objective, they may be subject to conflicts of interest that they're not even aware of. So confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, overconfidence bias, those are just three examples. There are literally dozens that we could talk about. Um, there are situational pressures, the duty of uh, the, the power of obedience, um, very famous psychological studies by Stanley Milgram that are, that are relevant here, um, the power of conformity. Uh, people tend to want to go along with the group, even if the group is wrong. Um, studies that are relevant to that. So these are some of the issues that, that I've been exploring and that others have been exploring. Your scholarship in this area has been cited in a landmark legal ethics decision, United States v. Kentucky Bar Association. Could you explain what the issue was in that case and how behavioral legal ethics played a role both in that issue and the ultimate ruling of the court? Sure. Um, well, uh, uh, most of my work is in the, in the domain of criminal law. And uh, so this was an article that I worked on uh, that focused on the question of how do lawyers handle conflicts of interest in criminal cases? How do defense lawyers handle uh, conflicts of interest in criminal cases? 95% um, of cases end up in a plea bargain. You probably have heard that before. Um, and often, prosecutors, as a precondition to allowing a defendant to plead guilty, um, ask and require that they waive their right to various different remedies, one of which is they're not allowed to claim ineffective assistance of counsel as a precondition to pleading guilty. So this is often a standard offer that prosecutors make, and defense attorneys in those situations have to advise their clients on whether or not to accept the offer. Should I advise my client to waive his right to claim ineffective assistance in order to get this plea deal? Many bar associations, including the Kentucky Bar Association, said it was unethical for lawyers to advise their clients in those circumstances because there's a conflict of interest, right? The lawyer is essentially advising the client to waive the right to complain about the lawyer's own conduct, a classic example of a conflict. Uh, but the case, these cases, uh, this was still going on despite these bar opinions, and there had not been actually any court decisions about it. So one of the uh, most significant, perhaps the most significant case was the Kentucky Bar case that happened uh, last year. The U.S. Attorney's Office, not happy with a Kentucky Bar decision that said that it was unethical for these uh, for these waivers to be in these plea agreements, um, brought the case to the Kentucky Supreme Court, basically asking for a reinterpretation of whether or not this was ethical or not. And the Kentucky Supreme Court agreed with the Kentucky Bar, saying that it's unethical for lawyers to advise their clients either to accept or not accept these waivers. And as part of its decision, in, I thought a significant amount of, of space I was very happy to see, um, they cited to an article that I wrote on the whole psychology of decision-making, and much of the focus of that part of the decision was on how lawyers, even if they're not conscious and aware of the conflicts of interest in these types of situations, because of the overconfidence that we were describing before, 
before because of a concept called bounded ethicality, which basically means that lawyers tend not to be aware of the ways that they engage in unethical misbehavior, um, that this was evidence of uh, the existence of the types of conflicts that supports the notion that, that defense lawyers should not be allowed to advise their clients on these types of situations. Um, after the Kentucky Bar case came out, uh, the U.S. Attorney's, excuse me, the Department of Justice, uh, the Attorney General Eric Holder, actually announced um, shortly thereafter that uh, the United States U.S. Attorney's offices would no longer be asking across the country for defendants to waive their rights to ineffective assistance of counsel as a condition of plea deals. So um, while we can't prove that it was the Kentucky Bar case that had that effect, it happened shortly thereafter, and I think it was wonderful that the that the Department of Justice took that position. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So here at New England Law, you teach legal ethics, among other courses. In what ways have you woven your work in behavioral legal ethics into this class? Well, it's become a very significant part of what I teach. Um, in every class, we talk about some aspect of the psychology of decision making. We spend a lot of time talking about the um, biases and the, what's called heuristics, which are mental shortcuts that people use, the kind of unconscious quick decision-making mechanisms that we use to make, often to make decisions. I mean, we use examples of them, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, overconfidence, other ones, anchoring, representativeness, hindsight bias. There's a whole host of them that kind of describe particular phenomena and how it applies to legal ethics. We also talk about those situational variables. So, for example, when we're talking about um, obedience to authority, we talk about the, Mil the Stanley Milgram experiments, famous experiments from the 1960s where he was able to demonstrate that ordinary people would be willing to administer up to lethal shocks to other uh, study subjects, um, simply because they were essentially told to do so by an experimenter, that just by being told by an experimenter that this was what the study required, they were 60-something uh, percent of the study participants were willing to go up to 450 volts. And now, of course, these shocks were not being administered, but the study participants thought they were being administered. And one of the lessons from the study is how easy it is, unfortunately, for people to obey authority, even in significantly unethical ways. So we talk about that, how that applies to the types of decisions that young lawyers have to make in, for example, law firms, when supervisors might be either encouraging them or ordering them to engage in conduct that might be questionable. Um, we talk about the power of conformity, and there's a very a, a series of really interesting studies that demonstrates we really are very much subject to peer pressure. What happens if you don't know what the right approach to a situation is, but you look around and you see your peers in your organization? Others, for example, are overbilling clients. Should you be doing that? How easy it is to fall prey to those group pressures? Um, so that's that happens in the classroom. We spend a lot of time in the classroom talking about these issues. Um, there's also an extra credit assignment. The students are, uh, follow a blog that I create called Understanding Behavioral Legal Ethics, where we do a lot of blogging about these issues, and students actually can create their own blog posts for, for extra credit. So um, I'd say we spend a lot of time uh, on these issues, and, uh, and uh, I hope that it's, it's helpful. That sounds interesting. Probably different than the normal legal ethics class. I think so. How was your experience incorporating behavioral legal ethics into the standard ethics curriculum worked with students? Does it open their eyes to their own biases? Does it blend well with the standard doctrinal material? Well, that's a good question. And, um, you know, the, the whole premise of behavioral legal ethics is that there's empirical, psychological data and support for these propositions, right? Um, what we do is we look at what the social science tells us about the decisions that people make and um, apply that psychology and that the 
applied social science to legal ethics. Um, so I'm, I like to focus on data, and unfortunately, we don't have any data on the question of what impact is this having on students in the classroom. I would be very interested in doing some sort of longitudinal assessment to see if it does change behavior. My hope is that it does. My expectation is that it will. But at this point, I believe that it's important for students to know about this. I'm getting good feedback from students in the classroom. I think that they think that it helps to provide a different form of context for the discussions. I will hope to track some of my students' years into the future and uh, find out whether or not this is helping them in, in the types of decisions that they have to make. Where do you see the use of behavioral legal ethics in the classroom going in the future? Well, this is an area that is, is growing. There's no question there's a greater interest in behavioral science and behavioral research in general. You probably have heard of some uh, important books that have been very popular. Nudge, for example, by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. Um, there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. These are big bestsellers. Uh, the uh, United States government, the British government, have both used behavioral insights to inform public policy. So this is becoming more and more of an important part of national conversation. Law schools are, I think, becoming more interested in this. I have, I know people in other schools that are teaching from this perspective. Business schools have actually taken the lead in much of this. Many of the primary researchers in the area of behavioral ethics generally are working in business schools. They do research, they teach, and there's a movement, I think, in the business schools to teach from a behavioral perspective. So I think that there's going to be a growing interest in this. We've had some great conversations, myself and others, uh, people in business schools, about ways that we can work together. And I think that my hope is that there will be more and more interest in this. The American Bar Association has gotten interested. I'll be speaking in a couple of months uh, on a panel at the ABA's National Conference on Professional Responsibility, myself and a number of other people who do work in this area. So this is part of a, a growing trend, and I'm happy to be part of it. Again, thank you for joining us, Professor Elgin. Be sure to read Professor Elgin's blog, behavioralegalethics.wordpress.com. Additionally, our recently published Volume 49, Book 1, is now available on our website under the Current Issue tab. Also, information about our forthcoming Volume 49, Book 2, is available under the forthcoming tab. I'm Volume 50 Executive Online Editor, Brandon Airy. And I'm Volume 49 Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review Honor Man podcast.